Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so grateful for the guys who uh, made Guide Talk happen last hour. Thank you again, Tom, Tom, and Peter. That was a lot of fun. And some great questions came in from uh, all of you. So thank you for caring about uh, God's Word and wanting to uh, grow deeper in your faith. So that's awesome. I'm so glad to have Dr. Ann Bradley back on. She got her PhD in economics from George Mason University uh, a while ago in 2006, and she was also at the time a James M. Buchanan scholar. She's written uh, books, and she's uh, used to be, or still is, the vice president of economic initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics. Um, Just really an amazing mind and a great guest. Ann, welcome back to the show. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Well, I love having you on, and because you're so smart, and you put things in terms that I can kind of understand, and I I say kind of. (laughs) There's a lot of complicated stuff out there, but I know we all understand it when we just start talking about it, right, in the most basic way. I think that's what we have to do. So when I hear things like, you know, this new $3.4 trillion bill won't cost anything, (laughs) I go... I don't know if I how to talk about that or how to understand what was just said to me. Yes. Well, as my mother used to say to me, money doesn't grow on trees, <laughs> right? Right. And so it kind of would be convenient if it did, because in that world, you could just go pluck the leaves off the trees and finance what you need to finance. And presumably we could improve things uh, as with this $3.5 trillion um, infrastructure and spending bill. I think the idea when someone tells you this isn't going to cost you anything, you should audit, you know, the red flag should automatically be raised in your mind because in economics, as we, you and I have talked about many times, we know that nothing is free. Life is full of trade-offs. And so this will have to be paid for in some way. And uh, I think, you know, Biden and the Democrats who are mostly in support of this spending plan They need to try to convince the American people that we can afford it. And so politicians tend to say things like that to assuage our fears. But in reality, um, half of this spending is going to be paid for by adding to the national debt, which is already very much a problem. And so, you know, in Washington, D.C., the term is used all or the phrase is used all the time, kicking the can down the road. Mm -hmm. And right. So politicians care about the short run. They don't worry so much about the long-run unintended consequences or kind of who's going to pay for this. Everybody wants to kick that can down the road. But I think that we're going to face a time when we can't kick that can down the road anymore. And so we need to be judicious in our spending decisions today. Uh, And so that's going to affect future generations in very, very tangible ways. Yeah, and, and isn't personal debt stressful? I mean, if you have a credit card with a bunch of uh, money on the credit card and you're having to pay interest every month, isn't that stressful? Don't we all as Americans go, how much debt are we getting into? 
Right. How much debt are we getting into? It is stressful. Now, here's, I think, Bill, your point here is a really important one. When I, you know, say I spend too much money on my credit cards, more than I should perhaps, and then those monthly payments feel hard for me, it feels like, you know, maybe I need to reduce the amount I'm spending or, or, or I'm paying, and then that debt just accumulates. That is, as you say, a stressful thing. And the reason it's stressful is because I am accountable to my credit card company. That's why credit cards generally work because I have to face the credit card company. And if I can't do that, then I'm no longer going to be given credit extensions and my credit is going to, my credit score is going to be harmed. And that is a very important, you know, kind of number that we all carry around with us. It allows you to get a phone, it allows you to get a job, it allows you to get a house or, you know, a, a, a rental agreement. And so our credit score is based on our trustworthiness. And so there's personal incentives to try to pay the bills. Now, when the United States government, or a state government for that matter, any government racks up this type of debt, is it really stressful? Um, you know, is this what most people go to bed at night? Is this what they worry about? I think some people worry about it. I think that's a good thing to worry about this because I think it's a problem that's out of control. But the difference here is that we don't face the personal incentives in the same way mm. we do have Citibank's calling me, yeah. you know, every day saying, where's my money? Right. And so the problem is that there are no direct accountability incentives. And so the government has this built-in incentive to spend more and worry about the spending later. But the problem is that becomes cataclysmic in the long run. You can't do that forever for the same reason my mother used to tell me money doesn't grow on trees because, you know, that money is a scarce resource. And if we're going to dedicate it to these large infrastructure bills, then we're going to have to pay for it in some way, whether it's by adding to the debt, raising taxes. And that's going to filter into rising prices of consumer goods, which we're already seeing happening. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of damage that's going to come from this. And the problem is the damage is going to be borne by people with the least ability to work around it. So the, you know, kind of lower income groups tend to be harmed the most and the middle class groups by these types of long, you know, in, in the long run by these programs. Yeah, and and by making that comment, I wasn't pointing a finger at any political party because both political parties have done an amazing job of racking up a huge debt. Absolutely. I mean, if you just look at the data, it's very clear. Um, And economists have done this. You could just go, you could Google this and search, you know, kind of national debt by political party. And if you look at, you know, it doesn't matter who controls Congress. It doesn't matter which party controls the White House. Spending has consistently gone up over time, especially over the last hundred years. And when you think about it from the economic way of thinking, it makes sense. That doesn't mean we like it, but it's predictable in the sense that um, with the advent of the federal income tax and the IRS in 1913, this really changed what the government was able to do and how it was able to spend. And what we had historically seen, and we saw this in World War One, we saw it with the Great Depression, we saw it with World War Two, is you see episodes of increased government spending during a time of crisis, but you expect, you had the expectation that those would be drawn back down after the crisis was over. You saw this in 9-11. Now, there is some persistent spending that still remains, you know, from things like 9-11 and the Great Recession, but COVID really ushered in a new level a new game-changing level of spending, and the concern that I have and other economists have is that we're not going to draw that back down, that these programs 
stay forever because once you establish programs, for example, one of the things that's in this plan is to give people, quote unquote, free community college. Um, you know, that might sound really good on paper if we want people to, to have some college experience. But the problem is it's going to artificially change the demand for community college. It's going to mean people are going to work at different rates or maybe put off working. And so this can have really significant economic consequences in our individual lives. But, you know, the government is kind of perpetually going to pay that bill. It's hard to take that program away once it's out there. You know, so even if you have a a, a Republican president or a Republican controlled Congress and they say we don't want to do this anymore, it's very hard to redact those types of programs. And that's the danger of putting them out there in the first place. And and I'm so confused about the employment issue right now in this current economy. I thought I was going to treat myself to a really nice latte at one of those (sighs) particular coffee shops. I won't name it. It does rhyme with car trucks. (laughs) <laughs> um, but they, uh, they, I went to two stores. They were both closed. Wow. At a very and- early part in the day. And I'm thinking you're already out of business for the day. Yes. And it's just a coffee shop. And they, I guess they just can't find workers. Right. This is just a persistent problem across towns and cities in the United States, which is that it's, you know, again, going back to COVID and thinking about, our spending conversation. We're talking about adding $3.5 new trillion. We've already increased by $5 trillion last year. So this is just an, a massive amount of spending. And some of it in unprecedented times maybe is understandable, including giving people support who couldn't work during the pandemic. Yeah. But I think what's going on now it, is it's a little bit different in the sense that people can go back to work. It's do they have the incentives to go back to work? Um, have we destroyed some of the incentives around working, especially among the demographics of people who typically work in, you know, a coffee shop mm-hmm. or work, you know, kind of work in retail in general? This tends to be, you know, kind of less levels of education, lower levels of skill. It, t- it tends to be a job entry type of um, employment. And so, you know, those people are choosing to stay home uh, because we've made it very comfortable to stay home. And so, again, the unintended consequences of this is that you go to a coffee shop and there it's closed. And in normal times, that would seem very strange to us, right? We would very say, strange. Oh, my gosh, maybe yes. the power's out, you know, or something right? like this. But you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, I had a similar experience. I was in the Detroit airport over the summer. And it wasn't even like, you know, kind of an ungodly hour, like 5 a.m. or something. It was like 8.30 a.m. And I had to leave my terminal and go into the main terminal. And there was only, even in that terminal, there was only one coffee shop open. And I thought, this isn't good. This is a major airport, right? And and there's a lot of people in this building that are lining up to give you their dollars so they can have a hot cup of coffee. And they can't keep up because they can't find the employees. Amazing. Amazing. Now I start to think of the economy, and I'm wondering... Uh, if the if there is going to be a consumer goods shortage, you know they've talked about mm-hmm. supply chains and trucking, and um, can we get the products we need? And you start to see shelves a little bit more sparse. And it's strange things, isn't it? Um, it's things again with you know the coffee shop example. It's things you wouldn't expect. I had to 
buy, you know, snacks at one point this summer for my children's swim team meet. And I was out on the hunt for Gatorade. I had to go to five stores to get the number of Gatorades I needed to buy for this swim team. Very strange. Um, so there's a juice box shortage. So there's Lunchables. This is the world I live in, right? Free packaged <laughs> lunches that kids take to school. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of very bizarre, unpredictable shortages. But when you start to kind of think about the bigger picture and that you've already mentioned, there's there's supply chain problems. And the reason that they're very persistent, I don't know if, you know, kind of listeners have been um, seeing what's going on in California right now, but you have these humongous container ships that are sitting in the Pacific Ocean waiting to come to port. And they have food on them. They have toys for Christmas, all sorts of things. And most of these are coming from Asia, from parts of Asia. Usually there's maybe one ship waiting to um, to dock, and we have 52 just hanging out in the Pacific Ocean. And I saw a report that said, you know, some of those goods are not going to make it to people, to the stores by Christmas time, by the time they, we have those Black Friday sales in November. Mm. And so that's a long time for all that stuff to be sitting in the Pacific Ocean. And kind of part of the explanation for this is that supply chains are very complex. And, and global and integrated. And so when the entire world goes through this pandemic but responds very differently across countries, then you can't access the things you're used to accessing. And so stores have consequently been out of things or had massive price hikes. So we're seeing restaurants, and they, have, they may have a you know, 100% increase in the price of cheese. And so if they're selling you pizza or cheeseburger, they have to then pass on some of that price increase to the consumers. And some of it is just they can't access the things that are out there. So in, in terms of globally interconnected economies, what we're seeing here is that demand has really bounced back, which is a good thing because yeah. we're coming out of the pandemic. But it's not as simple as just, OK, you know, do what you were doing before. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're really going to have to rethink how we even deliver items to people so that yeah. we can smooth this process out. Indeed. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest, an economist, and you can... Learn more about her at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. We'll take a short break and be right back. show. So glad to have Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley with me today. She's a regular guest. I'm always glad to have her. She's an economist and so smart. And when we look at the direction the world's headed right now, and I, I think of interest rates and I think of people's retirement accounts, uh, what kind of direction do you feel we're headed right now in 2021? Well, I'd say some of it is a bit unpredictable. And I think what, just thinking about um, just inflation in general, this is something that people are watching. We're watching interest rates. We're looking at what the, the Fed is trying to do. And in fact, I think what a lot of economists are do, <laughs> doing is trying to analyze what the Fed's strategy is. So if you look at the mandate of the Federal Reserve, its mandate is to, to manage the money supply. And the money supply should be driven by the demand for money. So just like with any other good, I mean, obviously, money markets are complicated, but in that way, they're fundamentally the same. Supply and demand matter. And so what we're seeing the Federal Reserve do is really switch to focusing on targeting interest rates, 
but it's very unclear what they're, tar- you know, kind of the, the range of time that they're targeting. And so I, I think a lot of economists are, are a little befuddled at what's going on. I think we know why they're being maybe a little bit vague about it. And it's because of the massive expansionary monetary policy we've seen over the last 18 to 20 months. And of course, this is tied to COVID and tied to trying to stimulate economic affairs. Um, so that part, I think, kind of as economists, we understand but it, it is a bit concerning to see when the Fed starts to target interest rates instead of focusing on the money supply, then they necessarily start engaging in fiscal policy, which is outside of their mandate. I think that's the problem. Uh, I think even kind of Janet Yellen sees this as a problem, that, that, that the Fed needs to stick to, you know, the Fed has a mandate it needs to stick to. But there's a lot of, you know, a lack of clarity around, you know, what they're going to do and how far they're going to take this. That has effects on the rest of the economy. So for really 12 years now, we've been looking for inflation. And then when we started to see it, you know, kind of a lot of people said, well, it's transitory, it's transitory, meaning it's going to be short-lived, it will go away. And now we're looking at it and saying, it's here, right? Anytime you expand the monetary, the money supply in such a rapid, uh, at such a rapid clip and such a massive amount, you will necessarily see inflation. You you just can't ward it off forever. So Milton Friedman, you know, kind of very famously said, inflation is always and everywhere, you know, a monetary problem. It's about the money supply. And so I think what we're seeing now was bound to happen. And so you're seeing it in energy prices. You're seeing it in household items. You're seeing it in um, groceries. And again, we've talked about this before, but there's an there's a problem here in terms of who does this hit the hardest. And as Christians who are called to care for the poor, I think that we should be concerned about these issues. Because, you know, if you're, if you're a single parent, say, and you're trying to put food on the table, um, that becomes harder when your groceries, your grocery prices increase and your gas prices increase. So it's just more expensive for you to get to work. These are the things that ordinary Americans Not super wealthy Americans, but ordinary Americans have a harder time paying for. And, you know, we don't want people to have to drain their savings for this either. And so I think that we, you know, the longer issue, Bill, is is really getting the Fed to stick to what it's supposed to do and not engage in this kind of overreach. That's a harder problem to fix. I think in the short term, what we need to do is really think about how to how to get these supply chains back working in order, because that's going to relieve some of the pressure. Yeah. Um, But also how to just spur innovation in the market, because that is also going to relieve the pressure of higher prices. And I have a couple of listener questions and they're always smarter questions than than the ones I have for you. So um, Jane would love to know um, how what do you recommend and how do we get back on track with the budget? My answer, I think, is sound economically, but it's why I will never be elected for any office, (laughs) because it's not politically palatable, which is that we absolutely have to cut spending. And we just talked about this a few moments ago. Democrats and Republicans don't want to do it. They just don't want to do it. Um, They talk about it. Now, what we're seeing right now is a lot of Republican resistance to this bill, Um, and that's fine. But I, I, I frankly think what we need is a reevaluation of principles in politics, which is that big government is not good for people. It's certainly not good for the most vulnerable people. It is good if you're, you know, you can benefit from special interest group politics. But for the rest of us, it's not a good thing. 
And there, I think we have need a reevaluation of principles. So that's the long game kind of answer. In the short term, what I would say is we absolutely can't spend more and just continue to add to the debt. We, we cannot do that. We will become insolvent. And if the United States becomes insolvent, it presents a global crisis. Uh, because our, we have a, le- you know, we're the leading economy in the world, really. So I think this is a problem. I think we need to get these unfunded liabilities under control. Medicare, Social Security. I would be in favor of privatizing those things and grandfathering in current recipients, so that you don't upset kind of people who've paid in their whole life. But I think that there are creative solutions we can engage in. And if you just solve those two problems, you're going to you're going to solve a lot of our future problems in terms of spending. But we have to cut it back. And, you know, I was looking I encourage everyone to do this. I was looking at you can just Google what's in the infrastructure bill. And there's things in there that are very concerning to me. So thinking about education policy, funding universal pre-K for three and four year olds. So, again, maybe on one side of this, you might say that sounds good because then I can go to work. I don't have to worry about it. My kids are getting an education. But I actually think what we're doing is that this is unsustainable financially, and we're also giving our kids over to the state at an earlier age. So I think what we're seeing is this advocacy of kind of cradle-to-grave welfare programs of various kinds. And so I think we have to stop that in its tracks. But that's going to take a principled grassroots response and holding our holding our politicians accountable. It's a hard thing to do, but I think we have to make a lot of noise around that. Mm-hmm. And here's uh, another question, uh, a little on the spicy side. If we grade the nation based upon similar criteria used on the people, what would the nation's credit score be? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I think so, too. Yeah, I'm going to go with like a, a D. <laughs> um, okay, that's better I, than I, I thought. I am because I, I think... I, just to be frank about it, right? I, because I think that, you know, if you have, you know, my children are still little, they don't have credit cards or anything, but, you know, if, if I had a college student who came home and was like, look at all these credit cards I opened up and, you know, they're all maxed by the way, because isn't this awesome? It's free money, <laughs> right? So yeah. goodness, fiscal responsibility, we have to be teaching that as parents at a very young age. And, you know, we would, we would look at that child and say, you're going to wreck your future if you do this. We would give them an F. They were, their score would be an F. True. So, you know, maybe being giving a D is even charitable. I'm not sure. But I think part of back to what I talked about a little bit earlier, which is the Fed is engaging in fiscal policy. It's, that's a very dangerous thing to do because there's just no end to the projects politicians want to fund. Yeah. And if there's this, you know, kind of magical money um, to fund it, then it's never going to go away. And it's, it's very intoxicating thing for politicians to sell that to people, which is why you heard the president talk about, this isn't going to cost you anything. Well, you know, of course it is. So, you know, and here's, here's the upside though. The upside is that the dollar is strong in general and it's, you know, it's the currency of demand across Mm -hmm. the world. And so that that's what's yeah. in favor. And I always hate to cut off your brilliance. I could li- I could listen to you talk for another half hour easy, but we got to go. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. You bet, Ann. Thank you so much, Dr. Ann Bradley's been my guest. After a short break, we're going to come back and talk to Dr. Rebecca Ree. We'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with 
Well, Rebecca Ree loves words, and she's been thinking about words her whole life, and I'm so glad she has because she writes beautifully, and she is going to be my guest uh, coming up. You can learn more about her at RebeccaRee.net. She uh, went to Yale University and then also got her uh, degree in literature and scripture at Yale Divinity School and then got her Ph.D. at Boston University. I promise she's got one of the hardest bios to remember and to and to say out loud. So there you go. She's just got so much happening, and she is uh, my guest for the show. Rebecca, welcome. Well, I'm so glad to be back. Yeah, well, you know, it's just getting things started is half the battle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I love uh, your blog, and I always recommend people to uh, go read it. They can uh, subscribe if they want. Uh, you are such a wordsmith, and I love the biblical application you bring to everything day ordinary things you observe and experience so that's that's a big deal in my book that you can oh, well. figure all that out god gives us what god gives us and he gives me small things and <laughs> I I, we're not supposed to despise those either yeah i love that so let's talk about a close call you recently had yeah so um the blog i wanted to bring up today is called i um e-y-e and it's kind of a cautionary tale. I don't know that I've given you guys a cautionary tale yet, but it's it's a good one. It's one that actually motivated me rather than, like, depressed me. Um, so I want to talk about that today. I'd love to. And, yes. And today um, I was, you know, I, I wanted to talk about the, the phrase close call. And I've been pondering that because usually in the English language that means near miss. Like you can say, I just had a close call with a, gr- a crazy driver on the highway. You know, that's what it usually means. But after a series um, of events in my life which drove me to the Bible, I've come to understand the phrase close call in a way that's way more profound than just near miss. So um, let, me, let me begin by talking about a close call I had with my eye. And that's for the last four or five years, I've been struggling with a very, very painful condition which causes the cornea in one of my eyes to wrinkle and then tear. And then oh it, doesn't, it doesn't heal normally. So this can happen at any time. And then when it does, I need to seek immediate um, help from a specialist. So it's not even like you could take me to the ER. I really need to see a corneal specialist when this happens. And I can be ambushed by this at any time. So one thing I do to prevent these tears is I have this thick, goopy lubricant at night. So I put it in so that my cornea stays nice and lubricated and it doesn't stick while I'm sleeping. And I depend on this lubricant like a diabetic depends on insulin. You know, if I feel anything, you know, starting to twinge in my eye, go ahead and I lube up my eye big time to get, you know, stay away from trouble. So last month, my husband and I were planning a quick anniversary getaway. We've been married 26 years. And during COVID, we haven't been able to have a huge party or anything. So we thought, let's just get away. We'll have dinner. We'll have an overnight stay in a hotel, breakfast the next morning, and then we'll return home. Like not, not even maybe even a full 24 hours away. But um, as I've shared numerous times with you before, my husband and I are raising an autistic son who's nine years old, but he's quite verbally challenged. So he requires a high level of care from us. So when we get, you know, do a little getaway like this, there is so much preparation that goes into it. 
So first I have to make a picture schedule for him that, so that he can read a picture. I have a picture of this and a picture of that so he can go down that schedule and understand what's about to happen to him and so he's not afraid. And then I have to make detailed notes for the babysitter. And then, of course, I have to pack. Um, and so in the hustle and bustle of doing all of these things, I failed to pack that all-important lubricant I was just telling you about that I need for my eye. So um, at 4 a.m., I shot up in the hotel bed in all-too-familiar agony. The surface of my eye had dried out, stuck to my eyelid, and torn in the middle of the night. So, you know, there's no more sleeping. There's no leisurely breakfast. There's not going to be anything happening. It's just at this time, it's all hands on deck. How do we get Rebecca, you know, to the specialist to get help for her? Um, and my husband was awesome, as he so often is in these situations. He just sort of kind of took charge of the situation early, check out, you know, do what we have to do. And by 830 in the morning, I was at the specialist's office um, for an emergency appointment. And an hour or so later, um, we were back home. I was wearing a special contact lens bandage on my eye and I was feeling much better. So on the one hand, we were really grateful for the provision that was like right there when we needed it, because actually the doctor on call that weekend was my doctor. So it was really great that I got to see him. But on the other hand, my husband and I felt so gypped. Like we had worked so hard to arrange this much needed getaway and it had turned into a total disaster. So, you know, I don't, to tell you the truth, I don't even know if I ever sat down and like vocalized both, you know, both my thanks for the help and my bitterness um, to God. I was just too gut punched by the whole experience to be anything but like numb. You know, I was mm -hmm. completely numbed out by experience. So I may not have taken much initiative with God during that time, but looking back, God certainly took initiative with me. And he specifically did that in two ways. So first was my son came home from summer camp with a little bug jar, you know, a jar where you, you know, you keep little bugs, and it had googly eyes on it. And immediately when he brought it home, one of the googly eyes fell off and got lost in my kitchen somewhere. And a few days later, I found it somewhere else in the house and I kept it. And I thought, this feels kind of significant for some reason. I'm just going to hold on to this. And then second, as I was waiting for my eye to heal up, I was driving, and I happened to look up. There was like a tanker truck in front of me. I looked up, and painted on the back of the truck is this huge eye, kind of like the eye you would see on a dollar bill, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. It was just like, so it was literally staring at me as I'm like scurrying to make it home, you know, before I have a problem with my eye while I'm driving. So there are two eyes on my landscape. There's one little eye that I found, one big eye that's staring at me at precisely the time when I'm in so much eye anguish. And I'm thinking, this cannot be a coincidence. You know, I better go to the Bible. So I ended up in the book of Second Chronicles, um, where we meet King Asa of Judah. And when we read about him, we, we find out that for the most part, he looks like a real winner as far as God-fearing kings are concerned. You know, he tears down all the places of idol worship. He unites some of the tribes of Israel together to worship the Lord. And the funniest thing is he even has his own mother 
his, the queen mother deposed from her position because she's an idol worshiper. I mean, you know, when a nice Jewish boy messes with his mother, that's, that's big stuff. <laughs> he was serious. Um, so now the place where we really see where, what he's made of is when this huge army from Ethiopia comes against him. And the record says that there's a million men, you know, in this army and they have chariots. Um, and so Asa knows that he's a goner. So he cries out to God and he says, oh, Lord, there is none like you to help. You are our God. Let not men prevail against you. Wonderful prayer. And the result of this powerful plea is that Judah beats Ethiopia to an absolute pulp and just wins this battle that they were, you know, so, so much the underdog. And immediately a prophet comes around and says to Asa, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. You know, now I don't know about you, Bill, but if I were in the middle of celebrating my victory, this warning would have been kind of like a buzzkill. You know, like, <laughs> what's all this talk about me forsaking God and vice versa? Like, why should I be vulnerable to that? What, what are you talking about? So, you know, of course, God never sends a prophet for no reason, right? So after a period of peace, another enemy comes against Asa, king of Judah. But this time, it's Baasha, king of Israel. So um, the nation is divided. Judah's on the south and Israel is on the north and um, he that's the north the northern kingdom and Basha decides that he's going to build a blockade to cut Asa off from the outside world so what is Asa's response to round two of warfare it's way different than what we saw in round one this time we don't see the abject pleading before the Lord Instead, what we see him do is he immediately takes valuables and treasures from the temple and his own house, and he goes to a third king, Ben-Hadad of Syria, and he basically says, take this cash and side with me rather than my enemy. And Ben-Hadad agrees, and what he does is he takes the bribe. He breaks Baasha's blockade so that Asa can swoop in and take the spoils of war. So it looks like a win-win, right? The clever king outboxes his enemy and winds up the richer for it. And as with round one of the war, God immediately sends a spokesman, right? Only this time it's a seer, not a prophet, and he dresses Asa down. And he says, what were you thinking relying on the king of Syria rather than the Lord? Didn't God just deliver you from the Ethiopians? From now on, you're going to pay for this faithlessness with ongoing wars. Um, and he got, he got clapped in jail for, for saying that to the, the king. Asa was none too pleased with him. Now, again, to my ears, this post-win speech sounds a little bit harsh. Like, I'm like, aren't kings supposed to be decisive and practical on behalf of their people? You know, aren't they supposed to make decisions quickly? Why is this fear of God, like, so hard on Asa? 
And, you know, the only thing I can conclude is apparently the seer saw the vulnerability that the first prophet was talking about earlier when he was talking about for the forsaking of God in victory. And so this seer says something rather astounding to us. But he says, the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And I'll say that again. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So I don't know about you, but when I'm in a crisis, I so often feel like I'm the initiator, you know, the one that has to cry out for help and hope that God is listening. But this statement says, no, it's actually God who initiates the rescue. Um, as with that bug jar and the tanker truck, mm-hmm. his, his eyes are everywhere that we are, you know, fastened on us like super glue. And more importantly, you know, the Hebrew that's used in this verb, and I won't get very technical with it, the word that's used for roaming, the eyes of the Lord are roaming, suggests that God's heart is really revved up. It's like super intent on stepping in and supporting us whenever and however he's needed. It's used in the prophetic books. It's, a, it's an urgent, urgent word. It suggests a certain eagerness and urgency to the situation. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what's the catch? You know, what's the catch of all of this working about getting God to, to support us and, and, and falling in line with this promise? Rebecca, can I hit pause? And then yeah. when we come back, we can find out what the catch is. Yeah. Uh, because this is so exciting and it's so inspiring to hear that God is the one that's pursuing us in the time of trouble. This is really powerful. Dr. Rebecca Rhee is our guest. You can learn more about her at RebeccaRhee.net. That's R-H-E-E. That's how you spell her last name, RebeccaRhee.net. We'll be right back. Rebecca Ree, author, blogger, Hebrew scholar, all of the above. Always a delight. She makes the most brilliant observations and then gives incredible applications, which I love. And we're on quite a story today about um, eyes and the eye. And God is pursuing us when we are feeling in crisis. And then we get to the point where you talk about, but there's a catch. And that's where we went to break. So I can't wait to find out what the catch is. Um, take advantage of the fact that God's intention is to eagerly and and urgently support us. Um, So we find it in the little detail of what Asa did when he was confronted by Basha in round two of battle. It's, It's that little detail of him running to the temple and taking the treasures from the temple to handle the crisis, to buy his way out of trouble. Mm. And, you know, and to me, that sounds like he's saying, I got this. You know, I have resources from God, and I know what to do with those resources. They're right here in my hands. I know how to use what I've been given to handle the situation. 
The problem is when you read the story, he doesn't appear to check in with God first as he did in the first battle. And I mean, isn't that so like us today? Totally. I mean, I understand that things get incredibly chaotic sometimes. I'm raising a special needs son. I get that, okay? But, and that we aren't always going to have time for a lengthy intercession before things happen, that we won't always get to prepare for that. But don't we at least have enough breath to say, God, I know your eyes are upon me. Support me in this situation as I give my heart wholly to you. You know, accomplish. I'm, I'm here for you, Lord. Accomplish what you want to accomplish in this situation, whether it's a, a favorable one or a hard one. You know, Jesus put it very bluntly when he reminds his disciples in John, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what I hear Jesus saying is, check in with me in the small things and in the big and the good things and in the bad, in the routine, as well as in the crisis. So let me make this little confession. Sometimes I'm hyper aware of how vulnerable I am to harm. And so, you know, there's no room for me to even make a small mistake, like at the hotel at 4 a.m. <laughs> and that, that leaves me bitter. And other times when I'm advocating for my son or trying to run my household, be a good wife, I feel like the resources or the gifting or the experiences are already there at my fingertips, and I have some idea on my own of how to use them. So I run with those treasures without checking in, and that leaves me forgetful of God and his purposes for me in any given moment. And I just know that I want to get better at staying connected to that vine that is Jesus so that I don't stray from those purposes. You know, the truth is we're going to do both. We're going to get bitter when hard things happen. And it might take a little while for that bitterness to drain out of us and we can talk to God again. And we're going to get busy and we're not going to check in. But even so, God wants to support us. And so the instant we are, we remember, we, you know, come to our senses, we need to turn our eyes towards God and say, help. And he's right there. So for me, close call doesn't just mean like near miss. It instead describes the phone line between God and me. You know, it's like the string between our soup cans is so close <laughs> that I can whis hear him whispering right into my ear mm -hmm. how clearly he sees me and how fully he loves me. This is not an international call. This is a local call. The string is short. It's a close call. So, you know, ever since I read the story, I find myself checking in with God far more often, even over the little things. And you better believe the next time my husband and I go on a trip and I start packing and making picture schedules, I'll remember to say, Lord, give me grace for this. You know, give me grace as I pack. I think I know how to pack, but give me grace to pack anyway. I love that. And I'm thinking of your great getaway for your 26th wedding anniversary and how much you and your husband, I'm sure, look forward to it. And then when things collapse, or your feelings like, oh, come on, Lord, give us at least 19 hours of carefree life together. Yes, it felt it, it felt exactly like that. We were on kind of, um, what do you go, in emergency mode because of how much pain I was in. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we got out of that, then we were in exhaustion mode. And then we were like, why does everything we try to do fall apart? You know, and I think it's important in that moment to be just connected to that vine, as Jesus said. You know, we need to say that we need to voice that bitterness 
as much as we need to voice our call for help because they're actually the same thing, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Rebecca, I love that you're bringing to our attention that not only are we going to God for big things, but how important it is to go to God for little things and to not lean on our, our own quick response and I've got resources to do this. I can make things work out the way I think they should I just think that's such a normal human response. Uh, and then when we are apart from the vine or we're not abiding in him, thinking I need to go to him with everything, right? Uh, that we always end up um, unhappy. <laughs> I do anyway. Right, right. Well, and that verse is whose heart is completely his. It's the shalom word. It means whose heart is fully. There's nothing missing it's wholly his. Shalom means something that's whole. And so it, it, it's whatever is coming up for you in your heart. You need to give that to God because he actually wants it. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, self-reliance and some of the concerns that you have about that. I mean, we, we all want to be self-reliant, but we, we also don't want to do anything apart from the Lord. But you've got a busy life and a busy family and so how do you how do you manage both of that? It's kind of an attitude of heart. I was actually reading Second Corinthians, and I was reading Paul, and you think you know Paul kind of like well way more than me. He he was a scholar of the Bible, and you know he had a lot of learning behind him, and he was going on these missionary journeys. And you think he has a lot of God given background to rely on to do his job, right? But he talks to, when he writes Second Corinthians, he says if we have any competence at all. It's competence that comes from God. It's really an attitude of, of heart, just sort of realizing I may have some things that apply to this situation, and they may even be things that God has given me and um, worked in me and sharpened in me over the years. But I never, ever should use these instruments or use these experiences and use these qualities of who I am independent of God, as if they were mine, as if I had created them. You know, both Moses and Jesus teach that the two things that are warning signs are, number one, you start getting distracted by the blessings God gave you. And number two, you start thinking a little more of yourself than you should. You start thinking, I'm my own God, and I made these things in my, I made these qualities in myself. I can, I can count on myself to get things done. Rebecca, I bet one thing all of us deal with is a part of your blog today where you talk about, you, you're trying to your home may be trying to rest from a battle you didn't know you were going to have to fight yeah. that day. That's probably a lot of people's day. And you say maybe you won't remember until some of the bitterness in your heart drains away. It's interesting how quickly that can creep in. Yeah. And I think we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't beat ourselves up over that. I think that's where the, uh, the accuser steps in and says, oh, my gosh, look at this filth that's in your heart. You can't go to God. Your heart is not completely his. And that's, that's just a lie. We have to say, nope, whatever's in my heart, and I understand that it might take me a little bit of time, like in any good marriage. Sometimes I can't talk to my husband right away. It's not the wisest thing to do. Sometimes I just need to step away, catch my breath, and then come back and say, I'm ready now. You know, sometimes it's just lift your eyes to the ceiling. God understands. He's been, that's the whole point. He's been here. He gets it. Yeah. And I, I love the message of at the end where, you know, you talk about a, a close call because, you know, not so much a near miss as a descriptor. 
uh, of the phone line between you and God. It's just a little short string on a soup can, so you can you can feel his breath on your cheek. I think that's a great image, a very strong image, and you can hear him whisper in your ear. Yes. Well, when we when we give all of what's our heart, what's in our heart to God, that has a chance of happening. Yeah. Always a delight, Rebecca. When I get a chance to chat with you, you always open a door and lead me down some hall that I didn't I, that I didn't know I was going down that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, neither did I. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think this is a, a uh, not only a great topic but a great reminder because everybody's at the end of the day has probably faced something in their day that they had no clue they were going to be facing. Yes, that's the world we live in. Yeah, and out of that comes a response that manifests in your heart where someone cuts you off in traffic and you think of the worst thoughts you can possibly think and you go all of a sudden those little ugly mean thoughts are in my heart yep and that's where you know where to put them or who to give them to exactly exactly so thank you for uh taking time with me today and i'm i'm sorry your uh 26th wedding anniversary uh (laughs) overnight was a little uh uh, not as not what you thought it was going to be We'll try again. Yeah, we good will. for you. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great uh, weekend. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet. Dr. Rebecca Ree has been my guest. You can go to her website, RebeccaRee.net. Spell her last name, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E. R-H-E-E is her last name. A- Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.